I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how'd you become king, then? The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. Shut up! Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away! Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Do you see him repressing me? Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. This is episode 46, and we're deep within my favorite month of the year, October. That's completely unexpected, isn't it, <laughs> listeners, given my proclivity for horror? Is it your favorite month? Oh, yeah. I love this month. I usually take a week off during this month uh, after Columbus Day, that bullshit holiday, um, just because I love just, just the bee. fall temperatures, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, everything that comes with it. I'm not... Don't think I'm going to do that this year. Maybe take a couple days. But uh, everything about this this season I love. Mm. You know, you get the creepies and the ghouls and the scaries. And that's only speaking about the target audience <laughs> of this week's Joker film. We're going to call them creepies, ghouls, and scaries. I mean, if we're looking at the social commentary and discussions about the possible irresponsibility of Todd Phillips' writing and direction of this film um, in terms of its, you know, incel... I gotta be I hate honest. that word incel. It's so yeah. weird. I'm creeping I mean, me out. I gotta be honest with you. I'm I'm intrigued to the point of I don't know. I don't want to say excitement, but like I'm. The reviews have been so like. Did you read the Anthony Lane review in the New York? I haven't. I've been, I've been sticking away from reviews until after I see it. So his review is not so much. It's it essentially tells you everything we already know about the movie, and then he just kind of like deals with the fact that you know, it's not the things that people are getting so upset about are not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is just to sell tickets. Like, it's a, it's a product. But he also says that it's one of the worst movies he's seen in 10 years. <laughs> sounds... Like, in just, like, he's like, oh, in, like, deplorable movies or something like that. He's like, in, like, the last decade. Um, but I don't know. That's a thing. So I'm really interested to see it and to talk about it because it seems like everyone is making, like, a moral consideration when they're talking about this movie and not, like, talking about it as a movie. I feel strange that there's a movie coming out where we cannot separate its morals it, its moral relationship to our current political climate and to our current moral climate versus like what it is as a movie I mean we're going to review this next Tuesday uh-huh. um, well next Saturday I should say we record on Tuesday and I can never get the two timelines down that doesn't matter it's an- like, Sometimes it's kind of like Boyd Holbrook yeah <laughs> uh, can't get it down um, he's got it down <laughs> but 
I can't find myself re- really, unless this film goes over the edge with how <clears throat> much it d- dwells into kind of like white persecuted man mm-hmm. ideas. I can't find. I'd see myself reviewing it as a film. I, that's why I'm going to see it as a film. I'm not going to see it as it. I don't think. Me and you have talked about this, what, episode 95, 96, something like that? Yeah, yeah. Where we talked about the responsibility of mm-hmm. film. Um, and we both said that it, it's gonna, it takes a pretty big degree of depravity to, um, you know, be something that I consider, you know, irresponsible. And I think that's, and we're going to talk about this when we actually see the movie. I think the thing that is missing is that... Um, it's it's a character like he's not playing Joaquin Phoenix normal human walking around New York City in like 1980 Rooney Mara is just behind him yelling at him saying stop this Joaquin please stop shooting everybody no he's like it's it's a character it's relevant to something I suppose people are interpreting the fact that he's you know um you know his race and making the thing that like oh he's a, a an oppressed white person with all of these oppressed white person problems and he's acting out this way and that could be suggestive to someone who think, also feels that way. But I, I I don't think that's like grounds for not making a movie. I think, I think you can definitely un- make a movie about that. I think it's unfortunate, you know, just the fact that we're having this conversation before having even seen the film, that it's kind of like hanging that shadow over the movie and that like no matter how you see it, you know, now it's going to be in your head that yeah that you're going to see it through that lens and it's kind of unfortunate to not kind of see it with like a carte blanche you know you you have that sense of like oh is this irresponsible and it's like i don't necessarily think i need to you know we saw house that jack built last year and that would 100 percent probably if you know more people mm-hmm. had seen it and hadn't been released over just a day <laughs> more people would have probably you know, had had a huge outcry against that um, because it's it's similar in that way. But we saw it without that veil, and we were able to just kind of review it as a we, film. We knew who made it, and yeah. we know what his movies look like and are. So we just, you know, that's what it is. But yeah, this seems. I feel like if we come on this podcast next week and we're just like, we really liked it. It was it was like heavy. I feel like we're we'll gonna... both be extremely confused because once again, guys, Todd Phillips. Todd Phillips, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah. No, it would not surprise me to find this, like, come Academy Awards season, this gets, this is, like, the one nomination movie. And it kind of has become, as the year goes on, the 77%, I think, on Rotten Tomatoes becomes kind of more indicative of, like, what this movie is, which is, like, Joaquin Phoenix is great in a very bad Todd Phillips movie. Like, where the where the where he tried to translate The Hangover and mix it in with a couple of other... Like movies that he really likes, and it did not work. Why is Bradley Cooper in the background? <laughs> he's just walking around. Um, Speaking of Bradley Cooper, he's not in the movie you saw this week, Tom. No, nor did he ever drink this beer. Oh, we should talk <laughs> about beer first. Oh um, boy. So I. Yeah. You know what you mean? That's a pretty big assumption. We don't know if Bradley Cooper has ever traveled through <laughs> New Haven. He could be standing up. right outside, just staring up, going, <laughs> "I have." I have had it. You fucks. <laughs> um, it's from Hope's... I was great in American Sniper. <laughs> He's just cradling his empties <laughs> out, in, out, the, out in the parking lot. Um, yeah, it's from Hoax Brewing out of uh, East Haven. Yeah? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's their Oktoberfest because we can't seem to ditch this Oktoberfest theme. Mario said get something fall, and the only thing that's fall out there that's not pumpkin is Oktoberfest. The pumpkins are coming, though, guys. I know, if you're excited for it. pumpkins. I feel like I'm being overwhelmed pumpkin. with pumpkin. But we have to do good pumpkin. We have to do one pumpkin that we've talked about, and then we got to do good pumpkin. That one pumpkin's not bad, from what I remember. Might be too sweet now, from my mind. Nice coppery... I don't want to say coppery smell, but it's got that... What would be a copper-tasting beer? Mm. Wow, 6% Oktoberfest is actually pretty intense. It does? Um, I'm, I don't want to say that it has an alcoholy flavor. It's got a kick. Yeah, it's got a, a slight kick. Heavy malt to it um, to, to like cover up that quasi-alcohol flavor. It's good though. No, I like it, but but you are right. It has like um, it does have like a slight, almost like a weird softened Jaeger taste to it. <laughs> Whoa! I guess I don't know. I mean, I'm gonna. I haven't had Jaeger in so like a, long. It has like a slight licoriceiness to it, mm. so a slight like um. Very slight, like that's what I'm tasting. Like there's way something in the on background. the back. Yeah, yeah, there's something in the back here. I don't think it makes it taste bad. I actually think if I drank a couple more sips of this, I wouldn't notice it anymore. It does have a nice taste. Um, like it does taste like a beer that's I'm gonna let sit for a bit. It seems like it's gonna be better as it warms up. Yeah, too. it's way better, but it's better than the harpoon. It's got more. No, yeah. It's got more body, body to it. It's, it's got more flavor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So good um, job, Austin and yeah. Austin's friend, whose name I forget. Um, that's the title of the episode. Um, speaking of things that I've uh, that are easy to forget, like Austin's friend's name, um, I went to the movies with my kids on Monday because it was Rosh Hashanah, so they didn't have school. Oh, right. I always forget that yeah. in Connecticut. So we went to see... Um, I taught school for a year. There, there you go. <laughs> parents, no, if any parents are every- listening right now, they're like... Oh, wow. Thank God. It's Thank not, God he stopped that, doing that. It's not everywhere in Connecticut, I don't think. I think it's just like... It was Hamden, for sure. Communities. Hamden had it, yeah. Um, we went to see uh, the new DreamWorks animated feature, Abominable. I want my Yeti back! Is that your home? No way. You can go your own way. I will make sure you get home. Back to your family. Everest is just a kid. Stop hitting yourself. This is you and your parents. Aw, you have your mother's eyes. (laughs) There are people looking for you. Go faster! You can do magic? This is amazing! This is impossible! I wish Dad were here to see this. You can go your own way, which was not in the movie. There's a Coldplay song featured prominently in the movie, though, which is odd. Um, although I suppose well used, but just like lazy. It's just the exact song. Um, so this movie uh, is direct. It's a it's a uh, co-production between DreamWorks and Pearl Studios, which is a Chinese company. This movie takes place in China. Um, all the characters are Chinese except for two, um, the, the the two villains. 
um, you know, all the the signs in the movie, all the writing in the movie is in both Chinese and English. So I suppose so they don't have there's like not a lot of translation there, which is pretty good, I guess. Uh, it's directed by Jill Colton, who did uh, directed Open Season, which is a movie that's is significant that, to me. Wait, well, is Open Season the um... it's the bear one that Paul Westerberg did all the songs for? It wasn't the one starring the guy from that '70s show, right? I don't know. I'm forgetting his name. He's married to Mila Kunis. Ashton, Ashton Kutcher. Kutcher. I don't think Ashton Kutcher is an open season. Okay, but I could be wrong. I don't remember open season very well, except for the fact that Paul Westerberg did all the songs. Um, there's nobody famous really doing war, uh, vocal performances here. Um, Chloe Bennett, who is a person, I guess, she's on some things. Uh, Agents of <clears throat> Shield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Sarah Paulson and Eddie Izzard show up and do some do some pretty bad voice acting. Um, the voice acting in this movie is terrible. Eddie um, Izzard's never like been. He's really solid he's really actor. awful. Um, just like a quick overview of the story. Um, Yi finds an abominable snow monster or a yeti um, up on a roof that has escaped from like a scientific lab. Um, or she brings wants to bring the Yeti back to Mount Everest, so she wants to cross the the country to bring the Yeti back to Mount Everest. She is uh, acquires two friends along the way. Um, they have some adventures. The Yeti has some powers where he can he can manipulate nature. Um, they're chased by the villains who is. Uh, one's like an adventurer guy who's an old man who wants to have proof that there's a Yeti. Uh, Sarah Paulson's doctor, their zoologist named Zara, wants to sell the Yeti to some for experiments or something. I don't. It's not really clear. It's just like for experiments. I actually say that a couple of times, just for experiments. Um, you know, everything works out in the end. The Yeti gets back. The bad guys fall off a cliff. Um, Yi goes home to her family and realizes the value of family, um, which she was questioning because her dad died. Um, yada, yada, yada. Like every other movie that comes out like this. Um, in relation to the, like every other movie that comes out like this, um, it's like almost exactly like a pl- from a plot standpoint, a general plot standpoint, like, um, like a studio's earlier film from this year, Missing Link, and that there's... An old man villain who wants to prove there's a Yeti. There's a group of people that want to take the Yeti back to like something resembling where he came from. It's a Sasquatch in this case and not you know, bringing him to the Yetis. Um, but it's roughly the same kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's a, the Yeti doesn't have... The Sasquatch voiced by Zach Galifianakis doesn't have magic powers. Uh, the voice acting in Missing Link is... In a, Missing Link is Zach is, Right, right? Yeah. yeah. Is the not, voice acting, not in this. None of this. The voice acting in... Missing Link is amazing. You get, you know, Zach Galifianakis, Hugh Jackman, Zoe Saldana. It's fucking great. Now, did you see <clears throat> Smallfoot, which is the Yeti movie that came out? We did not see Smallfoot. A year ago. Yeah. Exactly. We were in the Yeti. <laughs> like, Yeti, that came out Yeti September Assance. 28th, 2018. This comes out September 27th, 2019. I know. It's pretty suspicious. Um, it's like Dante's Peak Volcano all over again. Here's what I will say, though, Mario. When I was watching Missing Link... I kept thinking to myself, this movie is really boring. It looks pretty cool, you know, with its stop-motion animation. It's pretty funny, you know, funny-ish. Um, I can appreciate all the things that are happening here, but it's a pretty boring movie. It's not fantastic. Like, Studio Leica has these kind of, with Coraline and um, 
with like the work that Harry Sel- um, Selkirk did in, in um, like with the box trolls and the stuff he did with Nightmare Before Christmas, he's bringing these um, these really extravagant images to life. You know what I mean? Like stuff out of your imagination that you can't really conceive of. That's miss one hundred percent missing in Missing Link. It weirdly is here though. The animation in this movie is um, superb. And there are some action set pieces with um, the Yellow Mountains in China, with this field of, of flowers that kind of creates a wave, um, with this large Buddhist statue where the main character plays a violin and grows flowers. Um, it's really, like, there's moments in this movie that just are kind of breathtaking from an animation perspective. The story's ridiculous, but there are those moments that make it kind of fun. So there's, I was weirdly tempted, me and my kids all agreed with this. We were all really tempted to say that we liked this movie better than Missing Link. Which I wouldn't have said, I didn't think I could say because this movie is such a cheap, you know, um, formulaic attempt to get money from all four corners of the world and just like collect it all. Um, but it's more fun. It's way more fun than Missing Link is. I mean, maybe it's not. It's definitely not a better movie, but it's definitely a more enjoyable movie. I mean, I think that's kind of like the the raison d'etre of of DreamWorks animation. Um, outside of like how the Train Your Dragon series, mm-hmm. like most of their films look really great from an animation standpoint, and when they exist, the Shrek sequels kind of fall apart. But like even like yeah, Kung yeah. Fu Panda looks amazing. Kung Fu Pandas are great, and yeah, they're... I don't think they're. I don't think Kung Fu Panda's a good movie. Like, the entire series, I think, is nah, kind of... They're fun. I think they're fine. They're, yeah. they're a lot of fun. They're fun, yeah. But they, they're gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 this is, and this is kind of the same thing, where it's just like, the story is so rote, the voice acting is so freaking terrible, um, but they have these moments that you could, they kind of overcome that, um, its limitations. And DreamWorks did give us a B-movie, I believe. <laughs> well, I would say that's Jerry Seinfeld's worst moment if he didn't, if he wasn't just like continually giving us a, uh, a tableau of worst moments on Netflix through comedians in cars getting coffee. Um, but, but that's a different... Us destroying comedian in cars getting coffee is a different podcast, I think. It might be coming up soon. That yeah. might be our next podcast. Jesus Christ. Just reviewing every episode of that show. Now, why does this show exist? And then eventually it just becomes a podcast about just absolute nihilism. Because we... Lose our, our, not our necessarily our will to live, but our, lose our will to even function in, in the world. Like, re-enter into a different dimension of existence. Mm-hmm. Like a hell dimension. Like a Clive Barker kind of dreamscape. But I would argue that Jerry Seinfeld sees, if Jerry Seinfeld was to meet us, he would say that we already live in that dimension. Well, that's fair. Maybe he just wants to bring us all there. <laughs> He's just showing you, you can't be here. Only we can like be uh, here. like Kane or whatever, the author in, in The Mouth of Madness, in that he's oh, yeah, just yeah. trying to bring the nightmare he has Very to good. us with Thanks. his uh, shitty car show. Thanks, Jer. Yeah. All right, that's it. That's abominable. You know, I, I would say skip it. If you have kids, you're going to watch it on Amazon probably like 600 times anyway, so like, don't rush out and see it. Um, or Netflix will pick this up, because Netflix needs to fill that... That right. Disney gap, so they're exactly. like yeah, DreamWork, yeah. and DreamWork's like, "Sorry, no, we're doing our own streaming service." It's got fifty <laughs> movies. That's it. <laughs> it's got what lies beneath on constant. Yes. Oh, we're gonna have to get it then, Mario. 
Now, I do not have children. But what I do have is quite often open Saturday mornings <laughs> in which I can walk on down to the Criterion New Haven Theater, go back into Theater 9, that nice little yeah. three-row theater I love the with the Blu-ray um, loading screen playing on it. Uh, last time I was in that theater, I saw Brady Corbett's last movie, which we've talked about mm-hmm. quite often. Vox yep. Lux. <laughs> Did you <laughs> I, I yep. thought you were just building no, up the tension. I wasn't trying to build up tension. That just happens. <laughs> um, but this time, I saw the uh, horror comedy uh, from, I believe, first-time directors Dan Burke and Robert Olson. I don't know of anything they've done of significance. To me, first-time directors Dan Burke and Robert <laughs> Olson. Um, villains. This is a hell of a predicament we find ourselves in. I used to be a salesman. I could read people. Now, I'd like to take a stab at selling you. Judging by the broke-down car and the sorry state of my front door, I'd say both of you are on the lam. Everybody get down! Next up, Florida! How'd I do? That was amazing. I feel like I might be able to read people just like that. I'm gonna try right now. Um... Your clothes look expensive, and this is a pretty house. But you know what I think the most telling thing about you is? Come on, baby, there's nothing down here. It's, it's, it's the little girl you got chained up in the basement. Okay, so they directed Stakelander and Body, which are two movies I've never heard of, so I apologize to uh, Dan Burke and Robert Olson. But hey, this is the one they... they, they uh... They're, they're going to be known for because it's got a we're pretty solid reviews. Um, Mickey and Jules, played by Bill Sarsgaard and Mika Monroe. Mika Monroe, we've already talked about earlier in this podcast, and we'll be talking about again way later. Um, play two small time crooks and uh, basically junkies, but who, you know, are, are still deeply in love and fairly decent people. They've mm-hmm. just done their last score of robbing about $70 from a gas station on their way to Florida to open up a shell shop on the beach. Unfortunately, Mickey forgets to put gas in the car after robbing the gas station. Mickey. And the car runs out of gas. They start freaking out, worried about getting caught, until eventually they see that there is a mailbox on this abandoned kind of like lone highway. They go and break into the house to uh, get the car that is in the garage. Um, they're looking for the keys and eventually go downstairs and see a little girl chained up. Huh. They then go back upstairs to meet the owners, Gloria and George, played by Kira Sedgwick and Jeffrey Donovan, and Ooh. proceed to tell them that they're going to take the kid back. Eventually, uh, that process doesn't work out so well for them, and they are held hostage themselves. And there's a lot of trial and error in attempts to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, some good stuff happens. Why would you want to escape Jeffrey Donovan's house? I know, right? Yeah, you want some to stay there burn forever. Notice. <laughs> Who wouldn't love Burn Notice? Michael Weston. You think you ever saw? I, by the way, really quickly, I loved Burn Notice. 
Yeah, like, you actually do love I've, Bruce Nevis. I've talked to quite often. I, I'm a big, unsurprisingly, Bruce Campbell guy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mm-hmm. had to watch Burn Notice, and I was like, this is pretty good. Um, and, you know, relate to that. Jeffrey Donovan is playing one of his crazed kind of Michael Weston characters. In Burn Notice, he would often play like these larger-than-life uh-huh. characters when pretending to be somebody else because in Burn Notice, he was a spy. Um, and he does extremely well in this. And I would say, actually, all four leads are pretty great. Uh, the screenplay and direction, I don't want to necessarily say are rote, but they are... The direction's pretty much what would be expected of um, this sort of film, this small box-contained sort of picture Uh there's not a lot of really exciting things going on the most interesting shot in the film the only points in which i kind of like found myself seeing some sort of like real artistic merit or real arts not in a merit but real artistic voice um or a part where uh, jules make a monroe's kind of like climbing up a laundry chute and it pulls away and it's it's clearly like a stage set Mm -hmm. set um, it's all blackened, but you can see you're like in one shot kind of crawling up yeah, and yeah. up. And it's like, oh, that's a pretty interesting looking shot. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, though, it's directed like you would expect any of these kind of small Bach independent films to be directed. Um, the writing is solid in, in the sense of, you know, there's a lot of really funny moments, but it is 100% carried by the voices of its actors. Uh, all four lead performances are incredibly solid. Um, the reason I think that this uh, has the reviews it does is because of those performances. Mm-hmm. Um, Keir Sedwick gets to play really kind of manic craziness, which is always fun. Um, there's a weird striptease part that she does too. Where mm-hmm. uh, So kind of one of the, the main cruxes of the film is that George and Gloria always, Gloria always wanted to have a child. Um, and they weren't able to have a child, so Gloria's... Basically, they've been kidnapping people. Uh, the reason they kidnapped this little girl is because he thought that she could fill in as their own child. Um, you get hints that possibly they've been kidnapping and murdering couples for quite some time. Um, it's kind of just assumed from camcorder footage. Mm-hmm. Um, but she has this like weird striptease part where she's trying to like because she's trying to have sex with Mickey. That was weirdly erotic like and she <laughs> sold it like and i've never been like a Kira sedwick person like in terms of that way like you know kevin bacon good for you but uh like like she had like she like it's just the way she carries herself and like there are a lot of her body like language in this is incredibly solid huh. um it's weird that she would go all out there for yeah. a movie like that no one's gonna see no i, I i've from everything I've ever seen her in, she definitely dedicates herself often to the rules. And, oh, I and that's the thing about this. Everyone's going fucking full out, yeah, yeah. except for Mekon Moreau. And Mekon Moreau, and that would sound like a criticism, but she really smartly plays like the straight men. Mm-hmm. Like she reminds me of being the kind of Ted Mosby in the House of Crazy <laughs> that was like How I Met Your Mother. Um, there, but when like the moment calls for her to do kind of like really silly body comedy, uh, later on, George and Gloria plan to kill Mickey and Jules by because they're they're both like drug addicts, mm-hmm. um, kind of not not really drug addicts, but they both imbibe in drugs uh, to give them an overdose. Um, so they load them up with pills and plan to like shoot them up with heroin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're both like, but they get distracted by a police officer who comes by who saw the abandoned car, and so Mickey and Moreau's kind of like 
like they're both like lying on the floor of the gym, in the house gym, and she has to do this like good old kind of typical moving the body around thing to snort cocaine <laughs> to oh. kind of like offset the drugs, and it's really like one of the funniest like parts of the movie. Don't you get the impression though that Maker Monroe like this is what her life is actually like? I don't want to make that assumption. That's. <laughs> I feel like she's always getting kidnapped somewhere and like having to snort oh. coke off a gym floor and <laughs> to revive herself so I mean, she could get out of a terrible situation. In the films we've seen, in the films that she's done so far, you know, Independence she, Day Resurgence or whatever that was, the one I never saw. She always looks like she belongs really well in this world. Yeah, no, and, and like, well, I think just from her filmography so far, like it follows, and the guests especially, it's kind of like, this. this kind of follows that same train, but... Unlike in those films where she's supposed to play, like, constantly scared. Mm-hmm. In this, she actually has, like, a real determination and a real kind of, like, guts, like, gisto, but while still being, like, carrying, like, the white trashiness really well. Yeah. And, you know, contrast it to earlier this month, and unfortunately, it chapter two, like, Bill, like, I, this reminds me of how, like, solid of an actor Bill Sarsgaard is when mm-hmm. he's not, you know, being directed in it chapter two. I forgot um, it chapter two existed, so. Like, you, you forget like he carries he even carries himself slightly differently than you've seen uh-huh. before like in hemlock rove or in um it chapter two uh you know he fits into the role and that's the thing that that works about this is everyone fits so well into their roles george which is like jeffrey donovan and just plays this a weird kind of like 1960s door-to-door salesman sort of character in mm-hmm. this um that's just a lot of fun like everyone's just having fun with mm-hmm. this film and it's it's tight in in terms of its length. I was surprised when it ended because it's it has to be at most like seventy nine minutes. Oh, good. I think, but um, it's it's that's perfect. Yeah, perfect I length. Think, I it, it started hitting a point where I'm like, especially those small box movies. You know, those movies don't need to be anything longer than ninety minutes. No, so yeah, like you said, you were about to say, like at some point, you're just kind of like. When you're watching one of those, you're like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, there was, there was, it was starting to get to a point where I'm like, I'm about ready to be done with it. And then it, it was and like, then it ended. ended. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not something I would necessarily say you have to run out and see in theaters. This, like you, like you said, was streaming. It's going to be a small enough movie that got enough critical acclaim that Amazon or Netflix, yeah, I yeah. or even Hulu will pick it up. And it and sounds like kind of like the perfect streaming movie. And it's, yeah, exactly. It's it's a lot of fun to just, like, kind of waste not even an hour and a half. It's, so it's an episode of a TV show. You just basically. use the words fun and waste in a sentence together. Do we want to, like, use those same kind of words in doing a, a lead-in to our next new movie <laughs> that we're going to talk about, Like, Mario? sometimes it's fun to waste two hours of your life, and sometimes you're watching in the shadow of the moon. It's a normal boring shift. Too much, Dad. It's like a puncture one. Boys across town just caught two more bodies. Said both had some kind of mark on their neck. Get three random victims with the times of death and minutes apart. Bodies are miles apart. How's that work? Suspect heading west across Liberty. Hello, Thomas. What'd you say? Is this where it happens? 1988. Thomas Lockhart is a street cop played by Boyd Holbrook with his partner Maddox. 
played by Bokeem Woodbine. Woo. Always constantly misused in everything. And that doesn't change here. Um, one night, a trio of murders, unexpected weird murders happen, where people's brain belts, disintegrates, as they say. Uh, they eventually find that the... Actually, it's a trio, and then there's a, then there's a fourth one. I forgot about the fourth person. Yeah. Because of the party goer. The trio of murders, and then a fourth murder. Right. Um, they, they find the suspect. They chase her down to a subway where she is falls back and is hit by a train and supposedly killed. Mm-hmm. Nine years later, in 1997, just in case you don't know, this film gives you the title cards for each nine years, uh, more murders start to happen. It seems like a copycat is on the loose. However... Lockhart finds that the killer was the same woman he saw die in 1988. And we, we know then, that because she's wearing the same blue hoodie. Yeah. For no reason. And no has reason. the same bandage on her hand. No, no, no. There, there's a reason for that. Why? I'll, I'll explain it once we get to the end. Okay. No, um, I, I will explain it once I get to the plot description. Uh, then, you know, she, she disappears suddenly has, after she kills his partner accidentally and then takes off on a plane seven years nine years later jesus came forgetting the years that's how well this movie sticks in your brains guys lockhart is now a private investigator who's a drunken goofy fool with a beard and he's <laughs> obsessed with finding um this killer but before he can get to her she disappears in a time machine and then holt Played by Michael C. Hall, doing his best season five through eight. Dexter arrests Lockhart. I don't know. Nine five years Dexter, later, the accent was the same. Go ahead. Nine years later, Lockhart's out of out of jail. That entire kind of like build up to maybe he's insane and would be committed or something. No, he's, he's at, forgotten. Living on the beach. Yeah, he's just back on the beach, and now he's, he's allowed seen, to have a car on the beach. Yeah. Maybe he owns that beach. Who knows? Maybe he got a lot of, a lot of private investigating money. He's waiting for her to come back. He knows she's come back that day. And he finally confronts her to find out it's his granddaughter and that she's been traveling back in time to prevent the second American Civil War, slowly killing off the people who would be the fundamental ideology of this militia right-wing militia that would grow to create bombings and terrorist attacks that would eventually lead to the second American Civil War. Yep. And I described everything from the beginning to the end for you guys because this movie is really bad in the sense of typically when we say movies are bad, we think you should watch them still because even bad movies have a certain sense of merit in their choices and in the silliness or crap that they do. (laughs) This film, barring a slow motion van rolling sequence with a bunch of dead pigs flying around. Why are they taking the pigs? Because they need the pigs. Why? Because they they need to dispose dispose of those pigs. Did they need to? Why do they need to dispose of the pigs? Sometimes you need to put pigs in the back of a van. But... (laughs) Pigs rolling around and Boyd Holbrook rolling around going, God, I should have stayed on Narcos. Ugh, this, movie is, 
is devoid of any of that. Well, we got a really quick though. Line. So the reason, the, I will say this, the reason why uh-huh. um, she's wearing the same clothes is you're supposed to get the idea. It, it kind of infers this. She goes from, she's jumping back. Like she, when she leaves 2015, she goes to t- 2006, then to Oh, I get it. Wow, that's really stupid. So she just goes bam, bam, bam. She's doing this like in the, like two days. So yeah, that's really dumb. But I, so that's that makes so sense. that's but that's the reason why she has she like still the has bandage a bullet in her hand. Yeah, yeah, great. And why she's like really remorseful about like like still like really sad about the Maddox thing because she just did it. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, this movie is um, easily one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. I won't go that far. It's one of the worst. It's, it's pretty. Close it's to, pretty terrible. It's close to the worst movie of the year for me. Well, here's what I would um, say. It's terrible because it obviously they had some money. And did they? I think they had a little bit of money. So I will we will say this. It opens <clears throat> with a shot in twenty twenty four, so nine years again later, because I don't know why that had to be why that had to be nine years later. Um Yeah. Because the nine years, the reason why it's nine years is because well, the moon sent, has to have yeah. a certain... She doesn't get sent back from 2024, though. She gets sent back from further into the future. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. if she gets sent back from 2024, his granddaughter, who's born in 2016, she would be nine years old. Which, if that had been the case, this would be a much better movie. <laughs> if a nine-year-old girl was running around sticking people in the back of their neck with a little probes, their mm-hmm. brains could melt. You know what? Yeah. I would like this movie I mean, more. If Boyd Holbrook was accidentally kicking a or Bokeem Woodbine was getting his ass kicked by a He got shot in the head by a nine year old, yeah. Nine year old. Um There's a motorcycle truck chase with a nine year old, yeah. But uh, the reason it's nine years is because of this in the shadow of the moon. The moon has to be at a certain cycle because that for some reason makes sense whatever. with this film's time travel. Um it doesn't because their time the time travel science in this is garbage. But why does the 2024 thing have to be nine years later? And speaking of that, that opening shot of the first terrorist attack, the Philadelphia thing that sets it all off, yeah. the CGI on that is some of the <clears throat> worst garbage I've seen from a major Netflix Well, it's film. not CGI. It's like someone photoshopped like, fire out of a gift yeah. from somewhere and just no, like, stuck it on No, it's serious. It looks like we've talked about Bird. I think me and you have talked about Birdemic before. Like, you've never seen it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it... it, it it's a better looking CGI fire than that, but it does look like it's overlaid on top of like on top of like an okay CGI destroyed building. Yeah, it's like yeah. the destroyed the building in CGI. We're like, that's good. And somebody like the you know we Jim Mickle fire. was like, we need some fire. Well, so there's been there's, like we don't have we don't have the time. There's three terrible CGI things, and not all of them are CGI. Just two of them are CGI. There's the fire. There's when that truck that's flipping the. Fender of the truck hits a tree, and like the frame rate jumps for some reason. Like it's going regular, and then also it's like, and it also hits the tree square. Like the fender hits the tree square. Like you know, it's like tree fender perpendicular, but the truck is on its on its side. The other thing that's ridiculous is the time machine, which is just like an egg full with water, with like ladder structures and things like this. I my favorite moment of the movie is that. The time machine is there, and then it just pops, and then out. it's just gone. Yeah, they don't even like do a nice little like light bright thing. It's not dissolve it's just like yeah, like like an early. And I don't even know. I was twentieth century I was kind of film just sitting there, and like I don't even know if it made a pop sound, but I think my brain might have made it up. 
yeah. sound when that happened. I mean, so Mike, my... which it would have been great if it like it would just been. I mean, the production value on this movie stinks. I feel like they had a little bit of money because there is some there's some sets, there's some there's some things that they do, blah blah blah. The the script and the story is utterly preposterous and literally makes no sense. Not and I want to believe it's like me just nitpicking shit like this. It's but it's no. also just stupid. It makes I don't understand what. So we're led to believe from this film, from the thirty second description that we got. For one thing, it starts with um, the explosion in Philadelphia. Uh, we see a flag of the right-wing militia drop. It, this is supposed to be the first extremist, right? That flag is just dropping. Because ex- that- right-wing extremism was invented in 1988, just in case anyone was wondering. Where did that flag come from? Like, when I saw that, I was like, oh, like a, this mm. is going to be like a Trump allegory or something similar, like the country has... Well, it they're, is. They're trying to eliminate... Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely supposed to be that. But they're trying to eliminate somebody who is um, who has become a, a leader and has kind of like transitioned this world yep. for, like to a right-wing sort of ideology, uh, extremist right-wing ideology. But then we realize that that's just the first attack. And so this flag flying from the roof, not from the van where this solitary sort of terrorist attack happened, this first solitary yeah. of the right-wing extremists is just falling. Where did that come from? And we're also led to believe that this dude who wrote a pamphlet that really and was sent- interested, that really interested people who were reading history books about certain... Founding fathers, like what do we see? We see, I think, a James Monroe book and a Thomas Thomas Jefferson. Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson. Maybe not James Monroe. I don't know why James Monroe popped in my head. That would be great though, because nobody cares about James Monroe. Um, (laughs) James K. Polk. Like those people would just be really, like, oh, I love the history of presidents. Well, that's kind of what they threw it out there. Like, but why? Why? Why use the books? And but you realize that they use the books because this movie sucks, and so they want to put. A book in people's hands, or put a book at the crime scene, so you can be like, "Whoa, that's I the book!" I bet you they're a part of that terrorist group that but eventually comes. Here's but a, even, but here's even a still. bigger question, Mario: Why would you go through n- in nine-year intervals and of the kill all these the people? Why wouldn't you just go right back to if you can time? You can only time travel nine years. Is that the idea? Yeah. But so she's got to go. So then, does she go back? To like wherever she came from, and then go ahead, or does she just no, it's like nine years, nine years, nine she's years? She's just going nine years. years. She's just going down the ladder. It's the idea you're supposed to get, I think. Why wouldn't she just kind of go like from wherever she is? Nine years, nine years, nine years. Why get out of the v- Why get out of the thing? Just keep bouncing back nine years. Get out to breathe. Go back in, and then just kill the one guy. Well, the idea that they really weakly say is that. These people were set on the path already, and that maybe he was the spark to set it off. But these people would have found inspiration but somewhere who, else. So, like, look, look at 1988. Who are the people that are going to spark this off? It's the guy. It's the one guy. And then it's a concert pianist. Uh, excuse me. A short order cook. Actually, I, I appreciate that because I was like, oh, they're making a Wagner. I was like, are they trying to make, like, a Wagner thing? Like, Because yeah. Wagner's love of, you know, national socialism. But then I realized quickly, no, no, they just want a set piece of so a guy bleeding on a piano. A short order cook and a 
woman that works in uh, there's a bus driver like a late shift <laughs> ethnic bus driver who's just no she's she's white is I think. she white i thought yeah, she was like no, hispanic white. or something mm. pretty sure she was white but uh, either way like these are the people that are going to start the revolution well maybe no, no i think the idea is they're going to give birth to the people that would lead the revolution are now. they yeah no, uh, exactly like are they and and beyond that we're led to believe we are, that a we, guy we are really we are writing really a, lot about this movie. a pamphlet, like just a, a shitty old pamphlet that would then spread. You know, like anything, any sort of uh, types of those people would do a Timothy McVeigh situation like that. Um, we're, we're to believe that this guy would have such an influence, and that his ideas would ingrain themselves so much that terrorist attack, fine. And, like, one day I said, like, there's going to be a terrorist attack, and she was going to say, like, it killed, like, 3,000 people. Mm. Like, a dirty nuke. I would have bought that. I would have been like, yeah, you know what? Buy it. She then says it led to the Second American Civil War. Well, then what was this guy we saying in 1988 that, like, wasn't already said in 1987 of, yeah. by somebody? And, like, hundreds of thousands of people. Well, no, no, he died, I think. Did he die in 88? For some reason, I thought he had died. He was killed earlier. Well, either way, whenever like he wrote it, what was so fantastically different about what he was saying versus what somebody else was saying, like a day before he wrote his pamphlet? I mean, they talk about like Ruby Ridge and stuff like that in in the movie. These people were already out there. Like, why was this guy so significant that he was the person whose ideas birthed the Second Civil War? I, oh. I hate to bring it to you, but Ruby Ridge had a lot of national media attention. Yeah. A lot of people would have been like, oh, I don't know, something they were doing over there. It speaks to me. Like, they didn't need this one random guy that was living in Philadelphia to, like, explain to them why it was good and why they should start a revolution. I don't know. It's just, it's but just also, a terrible movie. Yeah, and then you go, you go with the ideas of the time travel. She says, like, you know, my, my path is set. I'm going to die anyway. It's locked in. The Civil War is averted. But that in itself changes the timeline in the sense that now if the Civil War is averted, you would argumentatively have never had an incentive to go back unless she's unless now she has to go back because for some reason they now remember that the Civil War happened unless she's sent back. Well, the time because so, the idea we get is that Lockhart is the one who convinces her. Lockhart's the one who kind of like trains her and, and convinces her to take the to, take to, the job. Yeah, to take the job. But he does that on the basis of believing in the need for it to happen because the Civil War occurs. But if the Civil War the never Civil occurred. War does not occur now, it's been averted because of her work. Yes, the, the building, the black parts of the building. Yeah, got erased is, in Photoshop. There is no CGI fire. The windows come back. Um, so where? So she still has to go back now. Is, is that the idea, or, or is it like an alternate dimension? Her is going to die, and this this daughter can li- live a full life. And I don't know, buddy. Everything. I don't um, know. Did she? I mean, that's always the time travel nitpick. But but the problem with this is it doesn't do any work to say to like. It doesn't even like. Try it, it. Well, that's like so, you're. Yes, I think we're at a point now, especially with like time travel films, or with um, films that kind of do this sort of science. To either be like, we're gonna completely hand wave it off, like, you know, we're gonna say 
that just happens that she was able to time travel because science don't fucking worry about it and i'm okay with that but this movie spends like 10 minutes trying to like well it's got two. build its science the end of the movie has two really long exposition scenes mm-hmm. or no three really long exposition like, scenes there's the... say like you have to have the moon the certain like yeah. gravitational pull of the moon it's so important like you have this long driving sequence from a guy who's just not that good of an actor i forgot even that character's name uh, uh rao or whatever rao. um rao yeah uh and like the guy just feels I don't know if he's not okay, I don't want to say he's not that good of an actor. I cause even though I like Boyd Holbrook and a lot of stuff, I really like Michael C. Hall and a lot of things. I always love Bokeem Woodbine. And all these people seem fucking bored. Like I don't know if... everyone looks so bored. So everyone's just doing line either line reading or they chose like an improv character. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that you do like twenty like you go, Hey, what are you gonna do? Well, I want you to play Manic Nerd. And Michael C. Hall's like, Manic Nerd. What accent do you Got want to it. do? Like an Australian sometimes. Just throw in, like, you know, some British, British imagine, imperialist Imagine accent. a Philadelphia accent has described to you by a person from the Netherlands. <laughs> He's like, I could do it. No, my, very, my other favorite part of the movie, and this again, you, what you said, this movie doesn't try. It, like, see, they must have felt like they were trying on set, but in reality, the director really knew, like, wow, this is going to stink. So, I mean, like, Bokeem Woodbine's character gets pushed by his back into, like, a med- like a case full of glass or something when he's wrestling with um, the granddaughter. And then, just for no reason, he's like, she broke my leg. It's like, well, when did she break your leg? You didn't fall on your leg. You have just fell straight backwards. Why would she break your leg? Like, this movie just kind of throws all this crap in there for literally no reason. Um, this, it blows it my mind, this like, blows my mind, too. Kind of just do stuff just for the sake of doing it. Because the only reason I, I said, like, watch this film was because Jim Mickle is good at taking, like, really goofy genre features and making them into something kind of, like, interesting. Maybe not necessarily with, like, a consistent voice, but, like, We Are What We Are, Cold in July, and um, Stakeland are all, like, you get, like, Stakeland's, like, a typical vampire movie. We Are What We Are's, you know, kind of got that. We should wrap we are, it's just kind of kind of a weird way to explain. Um, Sorry, it's, it's just it's just a cannibalist film, and Colin Jolly's got, got that revenge sense to it. But like he has like a good way of like creating something bigger out of really typical stuff. Um, but this is just fucking. This, movie this feels sucks. I f- it feels like a 1998 Sunday night NBC movie. Well, that's it's got the com- best way. Of I mean, it's got it. commercial breaks in it. Yeah. I mean, there are very clear spots but where you put a commercial. If, if I had seen this on NBC in 1998, like, I would have been like, that was okay, I think. I think I would have been like that. But it feels so much like those movies you would see back, back on those I, I, TV I feel like in 1998, we were more savvy because there was less stuff. So people would have just been like, this movie fucking stinks. And instead, they're just like, I don't know. I could have been watching 800 other things and I watched this, so I have to say that it has some value. Um, yeah, but yeah, we no, got we got we're, we're gonna wrap it up, but yeah. just this is the, this is the one of the few times where we say complete and absolute skip. Well, because it's not even fun. It's no. not even fun. Bad. It's just shitty. Find a clip of the car sp- going in circles and dead forever pigs flying. for like a minute and a half. That's fun. That part's fun. And then he emerges from the dead pigs. 
that are just there for no reason. Ugh. All right, we'll be right back with our 46s. I love comedy troops. The very first episode of this podcast, episode zero, we talked in my 105s to 101s a night at the opera. And then we've talked now about duck soup. And a fish called Wanda. Yeah, I guess that's, that's quasi-related. I, I, I say that's tangentially related. It's like half. Yeah. Um, but I always love just, just various comedy troops. Uh, from an early age, which is one of the things I say a lot. From an early age. That's my... Uh, you the, started the story early. Is, yeah. You started early. The story is... Or what is it? The what movie is or whatever. Um, it's the tale. I was enthralled by all the films of Lauren Hardy. I fucking hated the Three Stooges. Three Stooges go fuck themselves. We've talked about this They're terrible. on the podcast before. We are not Three Stooges fans. No. But Lauren Hardy, all of their, their shorts, um, really just their shorts, always enraptured me. And from there, you know... I, I found myself always just loving comedy troops. Mm-hmm. Even the Broken Lizard guys. I like I like all I like those I like those movies. Uh, Super, uh, Super Troopers, movie. Club Dread is my favorite. Oh, no, Beer Fest is actually my favorite. Oh, <laughs> beer Fest isn't even trying to be a movie. It's, it's not. Just like, it's, just it's just guys drinking jokes beer. About beer. Yeah, but it's great. Yeah, I, c- come on. This podcast has a lot of beer drinking. I appreciate no, 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 movies no. about I'm, beers. I'm pro Beer Fest. Never has a movie made me want to drink beer after watching it as much as Beer Fest. The reason I appreciate comedy troops is the fact that you get an emanation of voice. More so than you get for me in a lot of comedies from auteurs or from writer-directors. More so than even something like Kevin Smith or a, or a Zucker. Even though they have a very defined voice, there is a certain level of community mm-hmm. that hap- that naturally grows from that that emanates sort of throughout the film mm-hmm. um, and for that reason my number 46 as I look back over at the number because I forgot which episode we were on is the top of the comedy troupe pile for me it is 1975's Monty Python and the Holy Grail I say Monty Python you did Monty, it's, it's not Monty Python in the Holy Grail. It's its subversive, <laughs> lesser-known uh, alternative feature from the Asylum, Monty Python in the Holy Grail. Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. A picture so stunning in its effect, so vast in its impact, that it profoundly affects the lives of all who see it. One such film is... Very good, thank you. Yes, thank you. Next, please. Once in a lifetime, there comes a motion picture which changes the whole history of motion pictures. Uh, Yes, thank you. Next. King Arthur was roaming the land, looking for the men to fill 
his knights of the round table. And as he finds them, he is eventually approached by God <laughs> and told he must find the Holy Grail. He searches the lands, looking for clues to the Holy Grail, and right as he's about ready to attack the castle by which the Holy Grail is believed to be. The castle. He is arrested for the historian's (laughs) death that he was killed earlier in the film. Even though there's no proof that Arthur had anything to do with it. No, but like. (laughs) <laughs> you, don't, you don't need him. Has Rhysol in, in the Shadow of the Moon. You don't need, yeah. You, you know, just any sort of supposed police brutality would cause extensive sort of um, riots almost. Which, by the way, another thing we didn't cover in that, that review. What the fuck is going on with that? And also, they'll just stop after that. Do you just want to talk more about the movie? I have a hard time describing why I love this film because it's so easy to say why you love this film. Mm -hmm. Do we know anybody? Have you ever met anybody who doesn't like this movie? My mom. Why? Because I'm pretty sure because she thinks it's gross. She thinking of the meaning of life? No. Meaning of life is kind of probably just kind of gross. <clears throat> I think there's a group of people that think humor stopped at Laurel and Hardy with like knocking each other on the heads and things like that and like just don't understand the weirdness of Python. So Python's so weird that um, some people don't like it's the same people that didn't like Ren and Stimpy. You know what I mean? It's just too weird. It's just it's just too out there. Um, and, and and that's and so like so this movie it's so incoherent. Because it's not trying to be coherent. That like people try to watch it as a movie, and it's not a movie. It's nothing. It's a collection of sketches. Um, the most brilliant sketches that ever. Got absolutely. Created. And what's funny is, it's some of the sketches don't actually work for me. For so, the the ongoing kind of um, French guard sketch. Oh my god. I don't really like it. Why? I just I don't know. I just I, I don't think it's bad. It's just I think it's it's. I grew up with Monty Python, so. When I was a kid, PBS at 11 o'clock at night mm-hmm. would play the old episodes of Monty Python. By the way, we're at the 50th anniversary of Monty Python, so it's, um, you know, serendipitous that this weekend Monty Python, the Holy Grail, is actually playing in theaters for the 50th anniversary of Monty Python. We did not plan that. It. I did rearrange my list a bit a few weeks ago. But I looked up Not today to, to see. That, yeah. No, I looked up today to see like what other movies besides Joker were being released this weekend, and I was like, "Why is Monty Python: The Holy Grail playing?" And then 50th anniversary. What? It's not the fit. And I realized, yeah. oh, the troop. But um, you know, my parents adored Monty Python, and my introduction to the Silly Walk, you know, or the, the parent shop sketch was from this, or the you know the uh, departments of of words and disagreements and mm-hmm. all that. Um, and speaking of that, like the silly walk thing, I don't find funny, but I don't think it's not funny in the sense of the French guards part. I'm like, okay, I just have to kind of like get through this for my personal sake of humor to get to what I love. 
And this movie's so like punctuated by so many different types of humor that it works on every level. You get like the wordplay of the fake Swedish in the beginning with the projectionist playing oh, yeah, the opening the, credits, you the know. Llamas and... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you get the, the physical humor of the Black Knight. And then you get, you know, my favorite part, Dennis and the woman talking about various systems of government. With oh, her, yeah, yeah. Which is bar none to me. One of the, maybe the, like, absolute funniest bits of, like, like back and forth in a film. Well, I mean, the hero of this movie, not just, like, from, like, a King Arthur's perspective, but, like, one of the things about the French thing that I think is why it's necessary is at some point you have to give Graham Chapman more things to roll his eyes and look, like, mildly peeves about because, like, this whole movie sits on a foundation of Graham Chapman's face. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, like, that's, like, that that scene, which we heard before, like, at the beginning of the show, is just, um, like, it turns, like, Michael Palin's amazing in it, but it turns on Graham Chapman's just, like, general aggravation with everything he's saying. Like, he doesn't care. So he's just, like, shouting for him to be, <laughs> for yeah. him to be quiet. And, you know, Dennis just keeps going. I order you to be quiet. You say he's oppressing me? I'm being repressed. <laughs> I'm being oppressed. Um, you know, and that that's it. You know, like like these, you could tell that these people work so well with one another that they're they're good friends. Um, that there is just so much synergy and mm-hmm. energy between them, and and it's it's just purely evocative wit. Um. Even something like the Black Knight, which is just rests on a person's arms being lopped off, or the Killer Rabbit. You know, oh, it's those so great. are all just extraordinarily clever, and they're they're extraordinary. They have ex- extreme breadth of understanding of an audience, um, in the sense that you know, whereas some comedies will lean heavily on one type of idea of humor looking at like speaking of Todd Phillips looking at hangover which just like if it if that style of like kind of not gross out humor but kind of like bro humor doesn't work for you between two ferns from last week exactly which is just like oh this is just this forever yeah if that style of humor doesn't work for you you're gonna fucking have a miserable time yeah but with something like Monty Python the Holy Grail there is enough different types of humor most of it kind of leans into like the, the wink wink clever but there's still enough different types of humor that you're going to find something to appreciate. You are always going to have a good time. And that's why the exception of your mom, I guess, or some people I have never found a person who doesn't have, you know, just glowing things to say. I mean, my wife doesn't love it. I don't know if she's actually seen very much of it. And I doubt if she saw it, she would really find it all that amusing. Um, just because she doesn't really, this is not like her style of comedy. But I did show the Black Knight scene to my kids, and they just quoted it. They laughed hysterically throughout it, and they just quoted it to themselves and to other people, <laughs> like that's the thing. Uh, you know, it's, for, it's, forever. It's so utterly generational, too. Like you can watch Monty Python as a child and love something about it. Love, you know, just stay in in, in the focus of this film. Love 
the rabbit and love the black knight and love the bridge scene. And like, no, my, my favorite thing is, and it's, I always forget that it's my favorite until I see it, is the whole Tim sequence until the holy hand grenade. And then when the rabbit attacks and they're like, run away. Like the moment they meet Tim to like the, that run away is like the great, into the holy hand grenade thing is the greatest, I don't know. 15, 20 minutes of, of oh, comedy absolutely. movie yeah, yeah. <laughs> ever. There are some who call me Tim. Tim? Is yeah. one of the great lines in movie history. And it's so underrated. No one, t- no one talks about that what? stuff. That, that's like the, and that's what I'm saying. Like In terms of the generational appeal, it was like things that are hilarious as a kid but aren't funny as an adult. When you revisit now, you know, like the Black Knight scene used to be quite obviously like my favorite scene. Oh. Um, but... Now I rewatch it. I'm like, oh, that's funny, but it's not like things like Tim are things like the discussions on forms of government are things that make me laugh my ass off now. Mm-hmm. Things like the you know the bring out your dead scene. I actually think the bring out your dead scene works for bring it. Like they're so great. it's so universally funny. Like that's mm-hmm. such a good humor of like language and both like physical humor. Um, well, I mean the castle the castle anthrax scene. I think now is funny. It's funnier now that I'm older, and I don't think it's. Um, weird you know what i mean i think mm-hmm. when i was a kid i was just like and like i was i would watch this with my dad and stuff like that and be like whoa this is weird and just pretend like this scene isn't like happening or, or anything yeah. but now it's just like michael palin deserves like all sorts of recognition for his you know his uncomfortable acting and his facial expressions um and then uh the lancelot scene with, with um terry jones that just wants to sing and michael palin keeps trying to stop him yeah. Um, that whole scene, like the whole interplay between him and Eric Idle when he's like trying to silently write the note, and he's just like, and he like looks up, and Eric Idle's just like smiling dumbly at him, and then he shoots the arrow. It's just the best. Absolutely. Um, no, this is just—it's an incredible film. It's something that's on Netflix. You know, it's probably for the fiftieth because all the money yeah. Python stuff. Is I on think Netflix it just went back on the Netflix um, recently. Um, but it's—it's—it's it's worth a watch. It's. So tight and short, and that's just the unsatisfying ending, which is tremendous. You know, ending the way it does. And now I find the ending very satisfying. I actually yeah. like it a lot. But like, I remember when I saw this first time as a like thirteen or fourteen year old. It was when the first time I saw this film. I was so upset by it. Mm-hmm. But it's it's such like the the ribbon on the Monty Python experience. Oh, sure. The frustration. Um, I remember as a kid, Monty Python did a reunion, I believe, for their 35th-ish anniversary, somewhere around then. Uh, it was it was basically they all met in Vail uh-huh. um, to kind of do this, like, Showtime thing. Yeah, I remember that. Um, and they kind of do the same thing of just frustrating the audience. Mm-hmm. And I think that frustrating the audience and, you know, <laughs> doing the real kind of fuck you is, is always, like, a glorious thing of this kind of style of British comedy. And yeah. this is, like, the foundation for what would grow into a lot of the levels of British comedy yeah. uh, that, you know, I love to this day. Things like Spaced and all that are the, um, Greg, was it Grand Leaf? And, like, the kind of, like, IT crowd, Black Books style of humor. Like, three, sh- like, Black Books, IT crowd, Father Ted are three of, like, my favorite comedies of all mm-hmm. time. Um, don't know if you're familiar with any of those shows. No. Um, you know, and and their style of wordplay and kind of like aggression towards the audience mm-hmm. is, is absolutely comes from these the hollowed house. Well, yeah, between this and uh, between Monty, Monty Python, Python and Faulty Towers, it's just like you know, British, t- you know, comedic television was never the same after that. Like you don't, 
you know, Faulty Towers is on, I think, for like two seasons, like 12 episodes or something like that. And it's, you know, the, considered one of the great, like, situation comedies of all time. Um, yeah, we, should, we will talk should, about you this. You should check out Black Books, though. I think <laughs> it's a TV show that I'm not going to check it out. I'm all done with television. I've had it. I've, once the good place is over, I think I'm going to just quit trying to pretend to watch television. Sad that you decided that The Good Place was the show you had to watch. The Good Place is actually the first season of The Good Place is one of the great seasons of television I of all time. Didn't could never never found it funny. Couldn't get into it. And it's not funny. I like. I think it's. I think. I think it is funny. But I think the reason I like it is not its humor. It ratchets up the tension that gets ratcheted up because like you have no idea. You keep trying to understand what's happening and then you don't understand it is really really fascinating. In the pantheon of Ted Danson shows, it is. Uh, Sad, sad phantom. No, it's of like, the greatness of Becker. It's the number one Ted Danson show. It's Becker. I hate to break it to everybody, but Ted Danson stinks. I know that like we can't say that because of Cheers and and like Becker. bored to death and Becker and all this other stuff. Oh right, bored to death was a show. Holy shit, I forgot about that um, show. Yeah, Jason Schwartzman and Ted Danson on a show together on and HBO. Zach Galifianakis. Um, but right, that was Zach Galifianakis. He was on. Yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was. He uh, was. The friend, he was yeah. a sportsman's friend, um, yeah. But he's the best on the good place, I think. It's like the best, except for maybe Look Who's Talking, or Three Minute a Baby, not Look Who's Talking, Three Minute a Baby. But Becker, Becker was so stupid though. He just had to be mean. Becker was terrible, but it was great. Yeah, all right. And it, it started my crush on Shawnee Smith. Is that a thing that you really hold? Dear? That's true. It was it was a, a big part of early two thousands Mario. That that and the Blob. Which blob, that blob remake almost made my list because it fucking terrified me as a kid. Like it's that and Event Horizon and In the Mouth of Madness are the three like most scary movies to me. Event Horizon is just bananas. Yeah, I'm sad about all that shit being lost in a Transylvania salt mine. What? Like forty minutes of the movie, like hell sequence, like the sequences in hell. Yeah. Are lot were like they. We're put in a salt mine because they put a lot of like celluloid in, in salt mines because that's usually yeah. where it can be preserved, and it, it got destroyed. Hmm. Yeah, that definitely could have added to Sam Neill's eyes bleeding. One movie's terrifying. Yeah, that movie is. What a <laughs> what a what a Turner. But you know, it isn't terrifying. Monty Python: The Holy Grail. Watch no, it no, if no. you haven't seen. I think almost every listener of this podcast has probably seen it. Well, we're going to talk about it again in like thirty episodes. So. Oh right, right. Um, but if you haven't seen it. You should have seen it. Yeah. And then see Meaning of Life. Well, no. Then see Life of Brian. Maybe see Meaning of Life. Meaning of Life has really funny stuff on it. It does, but it has, a lot, just, of, it's... It has a lot of extensive periods of time of not funny to me. Well, and it's because it tries too hard to be cinematic and dark. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and they never it's the, excel really when depressing. they try yeah. to do that stuff. It's so. really depressing. Life of Brian is... We will also talk about Life of Brian. Soon. Pretty, pretty soon. Ten episodes or so. But yeah, uh, so we will be right back and with my to talk about uh, <laughs> a movie. That... Number 46. Welcome back. Um, so because it's my thing that I do all the time, which is uh, the thing that I'm talking about is thinking. Um, one of the things that I think about really frequently is... I've given that up long ago. <laughs> I've been telling Tom to. Um, is my list. I think about my list all the time, and I think about how it's constructed, and I think about um, 
I'm fairly confident about like all the movies I've put in like roughly pro- you know close proximity to each other, and I I, I wonder why. I, I wondered how I got there. And one of the things I was coming up with this week after I watched this movie, um, which I had questions about because I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I remember feeling a certain way about it, and I wondered if it would carry over, and in my mind it didn't seem to carry over because it wasn't something that I really was carrying around in my head. I was carrying around like in my in my heart, which is a stupid thing to say, but um, it's true. And I think one of the things the ways I figured that out is like all these movies in this little block after um, 50 um, are movies like I have a, I have a ton of affection for and not just affection in the same way. Like I like that movie or I remember seeing that movie and I have a good feeling about my, the experience of watching it. The actual movie makes me feel like very moved and like emotional. And I'm including seven in this conversation, Mario. Like, Seven is not a movie that I think... And even though like, Seven has all of its grossness and all of its, you know, uh, you know, subversiveness and all that other stuff, it's a, it's a thriller, it's a horror movie, but I really love it, like, in my heart. You know what I mean? And I feel like that makes me <laughs> sound like a weird person and that maybe someone's going to call the cops on me or something because they, you know, or report me to something or, like, you know, call DCF on my kids or something like that. But I think, like, I deeply love Seven. I deeply love Shattered Glass. Um, maybe, you know, maybe they're not the best films ever, um, but I love them. Um, they really mean something to me in that regard. And I found in this movie and a couple of the movies that are coming up, I found the same emotion. And again, I wasn't sure about this movie. And I, I, I remember watching it, and I remember feeling really complicated, deep feelings for it. But I wasn't sure it would hold up. But I watched it again, and um, it super holds up. And I'm super glad I left it on my list. And I'm super glad we're going to talk about it. And because I'm, in, I'm assuming that your opinion of it is like, meh, it's a thing. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's more than a thing. And the movie I'm talking about is um, Richard Linkletter's second before trilogy movie from 2004, uh, Before Sunset. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fun. All right. Think of it like this. Um, uh, Jump ahead 10, 20 years, and you're married. Only your marriage doesn't have that same energy that it used to have. You start to think about all those guys you've met in your life and what might have happened if you picked up with one of them. Let me give my back. Nine years ago, Two strangers met by chance and spent a night in Vienna that ended before sunrise. They are about to meet for the first time since. Hi. Hello. So I think the really interesting thing that I really want to talk about, and that I kind of discovered when watching this movie again, is that... um, There's a, a there's like a literature component to this. This these kind of these three movies kind of exist beyond the realm of film. Not in so much to say that they're so good that they transcend the medium, but their context is very specific to what makes them good. And uh, Linkletter, uh, you know, is kind of now famous for this. I mean, he made Boyhood, which you know he shot. Um, over the course of 12 years using the same actors. He's making a new movie now, I guess, that's taking place over the course of, like, 20 years or something. Um, But in the Before trilogy, we have, you know, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. 
They each take place nine years after the other, and they deal with the same characters having roughly the same conversations about themselves. The only difference is that the context in which they're having these conversations has changed. So before and before sun, uh, Sunrise, they were uh, Ethan Hawke as uh, Jesse and Julie Delpy as Celine were just two uh, 20-somethings traveling around Europe just doing cool things and thinking they deserve to have all the cool experiences in the world. Um, and before mid, before sunset, they um, have both built lives for each other and are confronting each other after having not seen each other for nine years um, and trying to pick up where they left off but being unable to because they're dragging these lives behind them. And then in before midnight, they've meshed their lives together um, so they think. And they're realizing that like you can never really mesh your lives fully together. Like we're two different people. We've had these same experiences. We've had these these mind-altering experiences with each other, but they don't change the fact that we're still two different people. Um, you need all... For me, I need all the other ones. For I need each movie in this series for each movie to work. Like, before, if you just watch Before Sunrise, um, it's so narcissistic and 90s, like a 90s era narcissism, that it makes me kind of want to throw up now. Like, I can't really get behind. And I kind of talked about this when I was talking about the Tommy Boy thing. Um, it just kind of makes me nauseous to think about, like, how narcissistic these two people are. And they don't deserve our attention at all. Um, they're not doing anything interesting. They're not saying anything overly interesting because there's no stakes to anything they're saying. They're both just going to leave. It's just love, like, at that point. And if, unless you really care about love, then it just goes away. Before mid... But after... And before midnight's kind of the same thing, a little bit, in the sense that they get themselves stuck, and it's not interesting when they're stuck. You know what I mean? Like, they have Jesse's, you know, transgressed the marriage, um, and they just really feel stuck. And you don't wonder, like, you're not wondering what they're going to do because the drama of what they're going to do has already been taking place. Like, if they get divorced, what was the previous three movies for? You know what I mean? If they can't work this out, why did we just spend, you know, 27 years watching these people grow up? If it's just to get to this point and be like, you know what, this isn't going to work as well as we thought it did. So there's that weird kind of thing. 17 years. Well, it's nine years and nine years and nine nine years. Well, I thought you meant the actual films. What? Maybe if it, between, no, it'd be nine years and nine years. So it's 94? It's 95 and then 2013. So it's like 17, 18 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because okay. there wouldn't be, there were the first film, sure, sure, sure. second film, But if you start film. from like here and yeah, yeah. Um, from like the lives of the characters. Um. But in Before Sunset, they're in this weird liminal state where both of them have made a whole bunch of decisions absent the other one, fully knowing, as we find out in the movie, that the other one is, is somewhere out there. There's an unresolved thing. Um, Jesse writes a book about his experience that's depicted in Before Sunrise. He goes to Paris to hawk the book at Shakespeare and Company. Um, and Celine is there. Um, they pick up right where they left off they go to a cafe they talk about you know climate change they talk about you know their lives their um all the same thing all the kind of all the same things that they talked about before um they have a they have a coffee they go walk through um an elevated garden they get on a boat and they talk um and on that boat we find you know we find out before that that 
Jesse did go um, to meet Celine, um, you know, six months after before sunrise ended, and she didn't go because her grandmother died. Um, and on the boat, he just kind of confronts the idea that he thinks that he wrote this book. Um, he says to, at one point, he says to prove that it actually happened, but he also says he wrote the book as a kind of, as a beacon for her to kind of, to find him again. You know, he's going to put this book out there and he's going to go 10 cities in Europe in 12 days. What are the odds that he runs into her, like in one of these cities in Europe and they can, um, you know, rekindle the thing that they had and they, and they do rekindle the thing that they had. And what they had was like so significant to both of them. They've kind of never been able to recover from it. Um, and then we end up with one of the great movie endings of all time which is he goes back to her apartment. She plays him a song that she seemingly wrote about him. She describes a concert that she went to from this artist. And then she puts on a CD and he puts on a CD and then she just kind of dances. She's like dancing alone to it while he's just like sitting there watching her. Um, and he says, and she's kind of in the voice of the character that she was just playing. She says, baby, you're going to miss your plane. Just kind of offhanded for fun. And he's just, he's playing with his wedding ring and he just says, I know. And then it cuts back to her and she does a little dance. She doesn't look at him at all. It's just is dancing and then it just goes to black. And at the time, you must have felt like, well, what happened? Like, what happened? Like, did they get together? What did they do? I knew that they got together because I watched his movies out of order, um, completely out of order. You know what I mean? Like, I had seen this movie nascently i know i saw it there's like a couple of scenes that i remember seeing like when i was a teenager um or i wouldn't have been a teenager then i would have been like older than a teenager um <clears throat> you know at people's houses and stuff like that where it was on where like cool 20 somethings were they thought this was like the exact way to live your life was to be just like jesse is elite um but I didn't. I remember watching like I the mo the pivotal film the pivotal film experiences for me in this movie were last year after seeing um, first reformed and kind of realizing that Ethan Hawke was a genius human being, you know, actor. And then me sitting down with my wife and watching all of these movies because she wanted to. I didn't necessarily want to watch them. Um, she just kind of put, she put on before midnight and we watched it and then we watched before sunrise and then we watched before sunset. Um, so I knew it was going to happen. I knew they get together. I knew they have two kids. I knew, I knew all this other stuff. Um, but that almost made the before sunset experience that much better because then you could just, you know where it's going and you could just sit and see how they twist themselves into like, I don't want to say pretzels. That's the first thing that came to my mind. They just, they twist, them, pretzels. They twist themselves up to not admit the thing that everybody knows that they want to admit, which is that they're like in love with each other. And that every decision they've made from that moment, like the first moment they may, they met on, um, has been wrong. Because the decision that they needed to make was that we were going to spend like our whole lives together. Um, but how is this... The fascinating thing for me, and the reason I hold this movie so dear, besides I, I just... I think it's great. I think the interplay between these two characters, I think the script is great. I think all this stuff is great. I think the idea is great. 
the cinematography uh, Richard Linklater does not have a history of being like having transcendently shot films. They're very they work- steady cam. They're very workmanlike. You know what I mean? They just they do the thing they need to do to get from one point to the other. I mean, I think even Boyhood, I think, is his worst photographed film because that movie, nothing happens in that movie, and literally nothing happens because the camera doesn't do anything. It's just kind of tracking some people, and then it just stays there. And then it'll track some people, and then it just stays there. Because of the sunset aspect of this, and they literally, they don't have all night. They don't have a day. They have, like, two hours. And I think we only lose, like, an hour and a half of the, the two hours. You know what I mean? Or maybe he has an hour and a half. It's almost in real time. Yeah, it's all And real it's time. in real time in the sense that, like, the sun is going down the whole time. You know what I mean? Like, there's this golden wash over every moment of this movie and it's breathtaking and it sets them in that weird now we live in we live in connecticut now folks so we as connecticut connecticut what are we called connecticutions nutmeggers nutmeggers we are not advised to go out at dusk anymore because mosquitoes will will, make our brains explode yes um but i mean they call dusk magic hour for a fucking reason because it, everything that they filmed in that movie has this weight, this really existential weight to it, which I don't, it's just one of those things. I, I, can't explain, I can't explain it in the same way that I can't explain why, like, Seven makes me happy and why Shattered Glass, like, thrills me. I am in love with, like, these outdoor shots of this movie and these conversations. Um and I'm in love with like some of the choices that I think I think are choices, like Julie Delpy's shirt. Like they keep showing it from the back. They keep showing them walking, and Julie Delpy has this shirt that kind of is half open in the back, and it's really like suggestive and not just like of like like a sexual thing, but of like a vulnerability thing. Like almost you know how in like um, uh, the Hobbit with like the dragon, you know, it's got like the one. The one uh, scale missing, and that's the one spot you gotta stab the dragons. It's like the soft spot, the underbelly. Like, there's that suggestion the whole time that that Julie Delpy's character, that Celine is holding on, she's protecting this area, and it's not until like the end of the movie that she kind of lets the area be opened up to Jesse, when he's sitting down, just like watching her, and she turns her back. It's the first time, I think, that, like, he was looking at that open-backed shirt. He can spy her vulnerability. He knows that she wants this, like, just as much as he wants it. Um, I think the mistake that they make in, the, in like, the upcoming movie is that they think that they need it, and they don't think it's, it turns from a want to a need thing. Um, but she can feel that shit, you know what I mean? It's, like, the emotional tension in this movie is so fucking real. Um... I'm really happy I watched it again because I just loved it. And it was like the same thing. Like after I watched it, it was one of those things where like, I feel like um, the instinct is to kind of meditate over it a little bit and it just like pumps me up. I'm just like, "Mm, that was great. That was great. And it makes me happy and makes me smile and it should make you happy. It should make you smile. These people are fucking in love. Um, But maybe not to the extent that I am, (laughs) that I am happy. And that I am just kind of thrilled to, like, spend time with these people and, and, and have this experience and go on this walk and have these conversations and, um, 
and see where this goes and track this for another nine years. Um, yeah, it's really, it's, it's just, it's fascinating. I find it fascinating. You worried I'd find it to be like a movie. I would see it and just be like, this is a movie. When you told me that we're going to be talking about this this week. I don't know where this is going. I feel like you're like, I hate I, this movie. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I got to thinking about me and Linklater. And I've been thinking about this since we It makes about, you do that. This movie makes you do that, yeah. Linklater before. Well, my first experience with Richard Linklater was I saw the Newton Boys. <laughs> because of Scream. Yeah. And Skeet Ulrich being in the Newton Boys. Sure. The, the only reason I, I saw like everything with anybody from Scream for the few years after Scream just because I had to. And I really did not like the Newton Boys. As you shouldn't because the no, Newton no, no, Boys no, no, no. Is, is, is objectively a bad movie. A few years later, I'd see School of Rock. And a lot of people love School of Rock. I love School of Rock. Me and my babies love School of Rock. Something about School of Rock made me really hate School of Rock. <laughs> a couple years later, I'd see Scanner Darkly. Everyone was telling me Scanner Darkly is pretty good. I went to go see it, and I fucking hated Scanner Darkly. I, in that same period, also saw Waking Life because of the similarities to that and realized I also hated Waking Life. I never like My wife loves Waking Life. I have never really got into Waking Life. I would then see Bernie. Yeah. Hated Bernie. Um, and just, we've talked about this before, I despise Boylan. We've, we've talked about that. I just think it's just utterly boring. It's got a good Ethan Hawke performance, good Patricia Arquette performance, and that's literally it. And coming back to the Before trilogy, I appreciate the acting. And the parts of the screenplay... No, they don't. It, nothing works. It doesn't... It doesn't I, I, nothing about this works for me. I appreciate its... level of thought. It is carefully constructed. <laughs> Just like no, the no. sentence. No, it's, it's carefully constructed in the sense of there is a meticulous focus on developing these characters. Mm-hmm. There is a meticulous focus on building this world. Just through the dialogue. Just through the dialogue. That all being said, this film like every other Richard Linklater movie I've ever seen in my life. Not hyperbole. I don't fucking buy, and I don't care. And I think that's the problem. I think that's one of the things... He is... I just want to say this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, get out of there. I fucking hate Robert Altman, and a lot of people say that Steven Soderbergh is the new Robert Altman, and I don't find that to be true. Why would they say that? Just just the similarities in style and kind of like a looseness. Mm. Uh, They think like Steven Soderbergh's a little loose. But Richard Linklater is the new Robert Altman to me. Just from and, a, and a, not, a feeling about him standpoint? No, not, not to, but a loose, there's a, a, a careful construction, but something that's so careful, so carefully constructed that with an intent to be loose. He reminds me, and this is, this is going to be uh, something that will make, maybe make you jump over the table and strangle me. <laughs> Richard Linklater to me is Philip Roth. In that he wants to seem so loose and seem so, and and this isn't this isn't necessarily a criticism of saying he's bad at what he's doing. This is a this is merely a criticism of saying why it does not work for me. Uh-huh. In that 
there is such a careful focus in creating a world but at the same time creating a world that feels so natural Mm -hmm. that i end up focusing so much on the construction behind that world Mm -hmm. um it it, so you as you said his films feel don't seem shot well they they don't have much interest they don't they don't really look very interesting No, no, no um but i think that's intentional I find that sort of not necessarily that laissez-faire sort of aspect to mm-hmm. the cinematography. Him being, you know, a cinematographer in a couple of his films already, and like being still a very focused kind of like mind in terms of the images he shows, uh-huh. shows to me that he's trying. He wants you mostly to focus on his characters and his yeah, stories. Yeah. That's what matters more so than anything, and. Because he's trying to always do these really slice of life or do these films that that focus very particularly on a certain refined, defined set of ideas, but that have a naturalistic quality to them, Uh that attempt to have a natural quality to them, that attempt to have a loose quality in the sense of it being actually a kind of like cinema verite. I don't fucking buy it, and it makes me, and it just annoys me. Well, he, annoys me in the sense, not in the fact that I think he's doing a bad job with it, but annoys me in the sense that there's a pretense to it. I just do not respond. Well, to. Well, so here's the thing: I don't, I don't really like Richard Linklater either. Like, I'm not a dazed and confused guy. I'm no, not a, God, I'm really. not a slacker guy. Like, Never saw slacker. I'm not. Um, the only really movies that I like of his are Bad News Bears. No, I think I think Bad News Bears is a lazy, is like a really lazy movie. It's trading. I, on... just, I think he just wanted. He probably just got money for that. Well, that was the so that's one of the movies that he got hired to do. It had a director, and then someone mentioned him for it, and then he. I remember him. There was, uh, I think it was his WTF. He was just like someone else could come do this movie, and they can do like a bad job. So I might as well just do it and do a Richard Linklater job, which is just uninteresting. Or would it be another movie like that? Because I wouldn't think like Suburbia would be something like that. With... Eric Bosnia being Bognazia. I can't remember to say his last Bogosian. name. Bogosian. Bogosian being the screenwriter. I think you'd be really into that. But I can't think I of that. Like, Orson Welles, maybe? That's kind of a weird one for him to do. He probably got hired to do that, but it was also something that he maybe wanted to do. Um, and he produced that, too, so probably. Yeah. Um, but I only really like School of Before Rock, Sunset. Maybe? No, School of Rock was a his was a his thing. It was him and Mike White. He didn't write it. Right? He didn't. No, Mike White wrote it. Okay. But um, what the fuck is that? It's Boyd Holbrook. It's coming to us. Um, the no, it's the nine year old on the motorcycle. Um, but I only really like this movie. Bef- I like most of Before Midnight. I think Before Midnight's like well done, and I like School of Rock. Everything else I just kind of find boring. But I think the thing that I'm responding to in this movie. Which is we've had this conversation before, which is the thing that you don't generally don't respond to in movies is like this movie is over it's not doing anything cinematically interesting, perhaps it doesn't have a lot of ideas, and perhaps its ideas are um you either buy them or you don't. There are real emotions here, but see the thing I would say and and we can't really discuss it yet, but we'll discuss it in a few weeks, but the film before you adjusted your list that was originally here in this position does that to me more authentically. See, and that's funny because I think that's the, uh, the opposite. I think it's manipulative. I think that film's more yes. manipulative. But I buy in to the slight manipulation 
uh, maybe more in slight. I buy more into the manipulation and into kind of like that general co- I, I don't, I mean, maybe I just don't buy that these two act like, I don't necessarily buy that Ethan Hawke and Julie, they don't have, there's like a weird lack of chemistry for me in certain See, points. I think there's a, all, it's, I feel like there's almost too much chemistry and it gets really weird at some points. Yeah, no, I never see that. And I don't know why. I, and I, I think it's just, it's too controlled of a, of a, of a script. Well, it, it doesn't so, feel loose. Like, it, it doesn't, like, you, I could, for something like this, I would expect it to be a little more kind of off the cuff. And it doesn't feel off the cuff. Ever. I could see that. I mean, Ethan Hawke has always kind of been kind of somebody who's kind of, like, had a real intensity to kind of, like, control. Like, when he does his own projects, right, right. he wants to control but them. that's why, like, I would say, I would argue that this movie... Um, and Linklater, too. Yeah. Like, there, there's so much control here but in the thing that with, it doesn't feel real but to me. See, that's the, I think this movie demands... And I'm not saying that you're doing a bad By job watching this movie. Me, yeah. I think this movie demands, like, a really intense viewing. So, like, it's really important to notice, like, how Ethan Hawke's body is moving. You know what I mean? Because he is... Fight, he's constantly fighting the urge to just like pick her up and like run away with her. You know what I mean? And like he, it's, it's there, and then and then that that urge transfers at some point where Julie, you can see that Julie Delpy like really like she's saying like don't touch me, but you can see that she really wants him to touch her, but she just can't bring herself maybe, to let him do and it. Maybe this is an interesting point. I think some of the emotions that Richard Linklater films present, especially like. I think this film and Boyhood mm-hmm. are not emotions I've ever felt in my life or don't believe are real. Huh. Um, in the sense of I would never fucking believe that I could meet a person in one day and be that enamored by them. Hmm. I, and I, the movie doesn't convince me that that is a thing. And it kind of does it like, like with um, you know, Before Sunrise. Um, and I don't know if it's based upon the assumption that it kind of thinks its audience will buy into that. But that's the thing. I don't buy it in Before Sunrise either. But I need. But then it. it's it's based upon this background when you go into Before Sunset to say that it has been like but this think has about like it. created a brain worm. But that's the thing. It's been nine years. Brain worms can create themselves in nine years. You know what I mean? Fuck no. Not, if, not off, on off one day. Sure it can. The, people I meet every day and never see them again are to have a conversation with The nature of your life d- dictates that you are going to meet a lot of people and then they're going to leave at some point because they're here oh, to no, do something and then that. they leave. But my argument to this is just like, I, I don't, um, and I think, and I think maybe I it's because of Before Sunrise's inability to kind of like evocatively tell how... Yeah, but, real and how... You know what, though? I'm going to interrupt in you. Breath, that you know story what, though? Is. I've known you for 10 years, okay? We've known each other for 10 Jesus years. Christ. I know. It doesn't feel like we've known each other for 10 years, but we've known It'll each other for 10 years. Soon. I know that things create brain worms for you. That do, I know but it. Like, over it doesn't a take, day? It doesn't take over a day. But I know what that brain worm looks like when it's burrowing inside of you. Oh, I, I know what it looks like when it's creeping out of your ears and you're kind of trying to yank them out. I know. like that. The one day, th- and that's the thing, the one day thing I think is bullshit. I don't buy Before Sunrise at all. I think this movie, with the context of nine years and like thinking about it and making all these decisions and being unhappy in your decisions, and that's why Before Midnight's important, because you're making decisions based on having already made decisions. Based on artifice, too. This, and also right, based on exactly. like an artifice this that you've This one created. decision is not working out. I wonder if that other decision that I didn't make would have worked out better. You know what I mean? And so you latch onto that, and that creates a brain room. And you think about it, and you think about it, and you write a book about it, and you travel, you know, around the world hoping to like meet this person again. And then you meet this person, and she's 
like weirdly prettier and she's you know got a whole she's not just like a floating around 20 something she's like a 30 something that's got a life and that's also made decisions and she's also unhappy and she takes you to her apartment and she picks up her cat and they're having a party in like the courtyard of their beautifully ivied apartment complex and she plays you a song with your name in it that you know she didn't just like insert your name in because you're sitting there and then she's dancing in front of you that freaked me the fuck out but you would also be like yeah, I'll do this. I'll do this for the next nine years. No, I don't think I would. I don't buy it. I, and, like, that's the thing. I, and I think maybe, like, this is a much better movie than Before Sunrise. Um, in terms of just, like, the natural talents of everyone involved. But maybe it's because Before Sunrise is doesn't do a good enough job convincing me of that. And then also in the same sense, Before Sunset feels so constructed off that oh, it's basis. it's very constructed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that I just, like, go, like, what the fuck? Like, this is craziness. Like, you both have your lives. Live your lives. And, like, and, and so then I, I end up finding myself so, like, live the lives you've already created. And I, I feel then I, 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 like, I see, like, this, the dialogue to then becomes to me becomes like stunted, and it's not stunted. That's 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 no, in, but, that's an incorrect feeling. Yeah, to yeah have. But I get what but you're saying. But I say that because then I'm so outside of the premise that the my suspension of disbelief, which I naturally give all films, is gone because I can't like. I think I can't adjudicate this kind of like weird precipice it's it's asking me to dive off of anymore and i think it's harder to suspend your fine. i think um it's harder to suspend your disbelief when the film is telling you that it's you don't have to you know what i mean like the film is telling you that it's real so if i said if i were to say that this movie has a flaw maybe it has lots of flaws there's no pauses in the dialogue you know what i mean so even if this were a play um, yeah, it doesn't breathe. It well. doesn't ever breathe. They're always talking, and maybe that's a little bit of a nervous energy thing. Like I could, I could probably convince myself that's the case. It was just so hot. It would have been good to have them take a breath. You know what I mean? And maybe consider them considering what they just said, or consider them considering the nature of the conversation that they've they've been having. You know what I mean? But they don't. They do everything out loud. Every word is just like dripping out of their mouths at the exact, like the exact words, the exact phrases, the exact rhythms that like they want it to, to, you know, evoke the exact emotions. There is a lot of that thing. And that's, and that's maybe a problem too, is I think you would have that, like, if this is supposed to be such like a slice in, of, of life in terms of, like, yeah, there would be a manic energy from Jesse trying to find her. You know, trying to grasp for her. And, and so, like, I could see him really trying to, like, evoke that kind of emotion and sell it. But there isn't that moment of, like, breath. There isn't that moment of going, like, whoa. It's only this is, like, this only is a end. fucking, like, breaking up. This is a complete deconstruction of the world we created. And which is then kind of responded to and before midnight. Kind of like the decisions and, like, the, the repercussions of those decisions. Um, in, in this major turning point. And maybe not having that moment where it's just, like... Uh, like like a laugh or whatnot or, or, or an evocation of, of emotion and then kind of realizing like like a slight breath to go like well, it's, yeah. well that's maybe maybe that's at the end because that's only at the end of the movie where he's sitting there and he's just like he's at his like most physically open like he's not doing hand things anymore yeah, he's yeah. not trying to touch anybody he's like playing with his ring 
But he's just like lean, he's like all the way leaned back and he's just like a big open thing and he's just like I I know. Like I know I'm going to miss my plane. And I'm going to deal with the ramifications of missing my plane. Leave my life for a person I've known for a But day. that's I mean and that's why before midnight I think and that's the reason I think before midnight doesn't work because like he laid everything on the line for Celine. And then he just cheats on her for no reason. You know what I mean? It's just justified with typical like husband cheated on and wife that's the, thing. That's and the thing. Like, like everything, on, man. Like, that's, that, I mean, that's the thing with like Linklater is like he kind of like if you're going to be that focused in your ideas and that trying to uh, you know if you're going to spend the the thirteen to fourteen years creating or whatever boyhood, you know, so you're trying to get like that authenticity. Yeah, Yeah. Like, you can't then expect us to buy these kind of, like, Hollywood filmmaking, or not Hollywood necessarily, but dramatic punches that are okay in film, Mm -hmm. or okay in other pieces of of literature or or stage art. Um, You gotta gotta present something a little more real. And these don't feel real. No, they feel very... Very staged. They're very tropey. Yeah. There's moments, and I think before Sunset's, like, in School of Rock are, like, the kind of... Anomalies. They're the exceptions. Oh, you know, we well, can school, disagree school, about that. I mean, School of Rock, I don't like. I just don't like its. I just don't like its look. I think School of Rock, those like leans into its tropes. It doesn't try to be anything else. It's, no, it's no, definitely no, but it's just like the, fun. It's, yeah, exactly. I just don't like it. It's, it's flat. But it's the least tropey, I guess, from a Linklater standpoint, in that it's not trying desperately to say something about like the generation that he oh, and Jack yeah. Black belong to, you know what I mean? It kind of is, but it's not like um, Dazed and Confused where it's like desperate or like everybody wants somewhere. He's just like desperately trying for you to understand that like life now isn't like life was back then. I'm gonna be honest, I mean? I'm glad I'm glad you didn't ask us me to review Where'd You Go Bernadette because I'm just I think I'm done. I I, I Oh I'm I, not watching that I movie. think I'm just at a point now I don't want to. I'm not criticizing like Linklater anymore. But we also didn't not touch flags of our father. Did either yeah. of us see flags of our fathers? Uh, well, or, I did see flags of our fathers. You I did? didn't see last flag flying. Oh, last flag flying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's. I unfortunately saw flags of our fathers. And Larry's from Iwo Jima, which is like better movie. Weird because like Larry's from Iwo Jima is like at a like a really solid level, and Flags of Our Fathers is at like remember a when, piece of shit level. Remember when Adam Beach like was having a moment? Yeah, it wasn't. It was good. No, I'm he was he, good. I'm sad he disappeared. Um. No, and that's the thing is like, I don't think I can like adequately review Linklater because I think there's just a huge disconnect between what I expect in film and what I expect in art and what he presents. He's just not a director that you respond to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, which is which is, I think with any... that's why I'm not saying like this is a bad movie. I'm just saying this is a movie I don't want to watch. This is yeah, a, yeah, yeah. and his films are movies I don't want to experience. Is that your feet? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I just want to make sure. One forty six ten, um, but yeah, that's. I mean, uh, we're gonna. We've already like come up against it in both of our lists, where it's just like, it doesn't do it. I can't do it. Like I want to, because we have to have these. They're really close together too, with Alien and. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just actually, you know, what's funny. Pretty much all Ridley Scott movies, I'm just like, I don't get it. I think in Michael Mann too. I don't get it. Oh, man. I I understand, I think, intellectually why people get it, but I don't get it. And that's the thing. I want to to love Heat. I want to love Gladiator. Can't do it. And Collateral? No. 
I never want to love collateral. If you love collateral. Wait, do you have anything else to say before? About collateral? No, no before sunset? No, I'm done. Okay. If you have anything to say about collateral, I'd be really confused because it'd just be, be a weird thing to be bottling up inside. You're like, 15 years ago. <laughs> I listened to some audio slave and saw a wolf <laughs> in a mood. And I felt some things and now I can tweet them at twitter.com slash film pivotal. <laughs> or now I can email them at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Um, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and see a list of the movies on our respective lists and the list of the beers that we drank or how to subscribe to our podcast or how to get to the Twitter account if you just don't understand how to get to Twitter. You know, if you understand websites, like you, type, you, you type in Twitter, then D-O-T, then C-O-M. <laughs> like, it doesn't work. I don't understand. What if we had a Department of Transportation page? <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be good. Ned Lamont gives up his endorsement of Joe Biden and then endorses Pivotal Film. Did he endorse Joe Biden? He did. Do they have the same, they have the same hair? I assume so. They probably smoked weed together. <laughs> How funny would it be if that was ended up being Joe Biden's excuse? Like, oh, I've just been smoking a lot of marijuana. That's I, why I can't focus. I People mean, would be like, oh. He yeah. probably should say that. Also, I love how you got what I meant, got what I was doing when I turned my can towards you. <laughs> Tom is taking a photo of the cans for our Twitter. Oh, that was, that was a bad photo. They're all bad photos. No, I'm kidding. Well, now I'm recording a video. Oh, my God. How does this work? Where Tom was just making... I like how this is... This is I like how the end of all of our podcasts are just like... Do you think there's people that just like go like, well, I need to listen all the way through. But they get to like the last like two minutes of our podcast and go, oh, my God, this is torture. Yep. This is a nightmare. I hope so. But I need to stick with it. Yeah. Because like, like, typically, like I think people get to this point and be like, well, okay, this is the part where they just fucking... Talk nonsense. This is where they add an extra ten minutes to an already too long podcast. Yeah, I mean, we just actually have to name drop some politics, like we always do, and uh, just bitch on and on and on forever. Yeah. But um, yeah, I guess um, next week's Joker, Joker yeah. week. Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. But part of me is like sinking inside of myself, and part of me is just like, whoa, all right. I heard, I heard there's there's some face smashing. Honestly, I'm excited just, about the strong, bloodly violence. I mean, he just shoots people. I don't know what's going on with me, but every time I now see strong, bloody violence in a, like, in a rating, I'm like, fuck yeah. yeah. But I'm going through this weird period where I just really like graphic violence in movies. It's weird, and I think it's very Todd Phillips in the sense that like, in, uh, in the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, the, the violence is really stylized. In this movie, he or just... like, or like, so sudden and are are quickly off camera that it makes it worse. Right, like the pencil scene, or like the man burning on but top of the stylized. pile of money. This is it's, just yeah, yeah. In this movie, he just shoots people, or like, like he literally just like yeah. shoots people like in the middle of the street. Well, everyone says that like this is Nicholas like winding Refn style violence, so that's not surprising. Well, let's so add this to the list of people that like Todd Phillips is ripping off to make this movie. Mucky Phoenix better be fucking great. I like how we're I like how we're already reviewing a film okay. we haven't seen yet. Um, go but, see the Joker. Yeah. Drink a beer. Probably you're gonna need to drink a beer. And we'll talk to you about it next week. <laughs>